Hi, welcome to another episode of The Bridge Podcast. I'm Nick Francis, your host for this. I'm the Chief Technology and Marketing Officer for Brooklyn Vendor Assurance, and I'm a Vendor Ops Community Advisor. Today, we're going to be talking about the importance of inherent risk and due diligence risk assessments in a post-contract vendor management sense. For those of you who've listened before or seen us before, The Bridge Podcast focuses preliminarily on post-contract management, vendor management, supplier management, and customer supplier relations. With me today is a guest, Richard Harrison, who's formerly of Arm Technologies. I'll introduce Richard in a minute and he'll take you through his background of his career. Richard has worked for brands such as Cisco, BT and Vodafone, to name but a few. Richard, good morning. Thank you for joining us today. Pleasure. Um, over to you. Where did you start? Let's start at the beginning of your career. What led you to where you are today? Well, so I started um, in kind of engineering and professional services, largely. Uh, originally testing software services from a uh, one of those brands that you uh, that you just mentioned there, and uh, and then moving into design, test, uh, quality assurance, service design, and then into kind of program management, which is largely about risk and uh, understanding kind of where you're at at the minute, what risk you've uh, you've got in your portfolio, and how you're going to mitigate it. And uh, then moving on into uh, into sales and switching over into supplier management. But it's always been about kind of just flipping it. Going back to the earlier time, then. So when you was a a tester, was you was you an engineer type tester, automated, or was it manual testing you was oh, doing? It was, uh, yeah, it was well before the uh, the proper automation days. So yeah, it was uh, it was very much hands on, uh, you know, understanding the product and then trying to work out how you could break it. Fundamentally, that was what I enjoyed. Just you know, where are the problems? How is it supposed to work? And what can I do to kind of get in and fix it or break it? So the world of test scripts and processing and going through repeat steps. Yeah. Test data, regression testing, UAT, something's never quite as you expect it to be and uh, you've got to try and preempt what that's going to be. As soon as you put a product in the hands of a user, God knows what's going to happen with it. Yeah, I remember when we met before you said that you'd, you'd what was the part in your career where you morphed from uh, a QA tester, test manager into an opportunity with another organization because you knew inherently the software so deeply what was what was yeah. that about so i um i was a consultant kind of working via a third party uh testing this product and uh, that product was then bought out by kind of one of those big brands cisco who uh, then kind of approached me saying you understand the product better than we do why don't you come and work for us which you know Never look a gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> so ultimately, you became, so I suppose, QA tester to sort of SME overnight. How did how did you cope with that that transition? I suppose the the focus on you was, albeit a familiar bit of software and kit, it changed as, in terms of the expectations on you, no doubt. Yeah, and I, I guess it's that move from kind of backroom, you know, nobody ever knows knows who you are and what you do, through to being the face, you know, sitting in front of customers and, you know, having to profess that you know everything about the product where really you never know everything, right? You're always reliant on kind of someone around you or good old Google. If I reverse engineered that or tried to, it would, would seem that that was the point where you switched into more... I suppose a relationship, like you said, the back room, where having been an engineer in IT in the past, anyway, like where they they leave you in the dark, where, where along with the mushrooms, where they grow, right? You're obviously in a basement. Well, I was in earlier in my career. 
it's in, that was quite a pivotal change for you because that's where you went from, like I said, albeit familiar territory from software, you've gone into more relationship management, account management and and uh, client facing as such. Did, and then that's how you continued in your career. Obviously, that resonated with you somewhat, otherwise you wouldn't have continued to do what you was doing. That's it. And it's all about relationships. And I'm a people person at the end of the day. It's it's trying to understand kind of what everybody else around you is trying to achieve and how can you work together to uh, to get there. And yeah, you've you know, I, I love I love working with customers, I look at, love working with suppliers and I really like those kind of like challenging situations where nobody's quite sure how are we gonna get through this. Everybody seems opposed to each other and trying to find that right angle to uh, to bring everybody to a consensus where you can turn around at a later point and go, wow, that went really well. How did we get there? <laughs> what, what, what attracts you to that? Is it the, the, is it the chaos? You like, you like being the chaos of the situation or you, you like the fact that there is something that's not yet quite defined and then there's a journey there? Or Yeah, it's, it, it's a little bit of that, but it's largely about stakeholder relationships, and providing value, whatever the circumstances that you're in, as long as as long as there is somebody out there that um, you know sees value in what you're doing, that's what I get the buzz from, you know. And yes, you know that could be brand new solutions or it could be tricky situations, whatever that is. It's pioneering to find that right way through in that particular circumstance. And um, yeah, bringing it back to risk. It's it's all about, you know, we don't quite understand what the scope is here. We don't quite understand how we're going to fix it, but we know that we need to. So how are we going to go about it? So there's a, there's a useful, uh, I suppose, characteristic in there from a an employee or consultative perspective that is if you go into sort of this unorganized world and you see these these things that are happening, there's, there's often a, a point of where you need to convince a higher power or another group of the of the need. Um, do you specifically find yourself in your career doing that quite a bit in terms of you've obviously been deployed in something to make sense of something and then do, do, do you feel we have a tried and tested approach? It's a bit like an, an interview question this. So, sorry about that. But um, what do you do to demonstrate a need to, to a senior of, of some situation? Is there a methodical approach you use in your mind? Or? Yeah, so I think it all comes back to the business objective. What is it that we are looking to achieve? Why is that so important? And if you can understand that, then you can tell the story. And if you can tell the story, then there's a good chance that you're gonna to get to a, an outcome of that story that people can buy into. Uh, you know, it's all hearts and minds, um, but you've got to bring it back to what are we trying to achieve? Why are we doing it? What's the approach that then we need to take? You know, your strategy and uh, deployment model, your operating model, the rest, it all kind of comes from that kind of vision. So I suppose that step change of where you went from tester to more relationship focused, and I know you spent a few years um, more on the customer side or, or, or focusing on the customer, so more sitting in the supplier side, focusing on the customer needs. Um, what what happened sort of four or five years ago that you changed? You saw, I don't know whether, I never know this, poacher become gamekeeper, whatever way you look at it, you flip sides when you joined Arm Technology, right? And you went to become the supplier 
or the or the customer looking backwards at the supplier, right? So, so I think it comes uh, again down to relationships. Um, it doesn't really matter which side that you of the fence that you're on. There is a two-way relationship, conversation. There's a contract. There's whatever it is that two parties are looking to get something out of, and um, uh, and that's what drove me. There was I worked in sales for four years. It takes a particular characteristics, set of characteristics to uh, to work in sales. And for me, it was just, you know, a stepping stone. It was getting kind of the financial exposure, understanding business case, sales strategies, you know, how the supplier goes about putting together all of those different pieces to meet that end customer needs. Um, and I really enjoyed that to deliver something really great out to uh, my end customers. But really, when I flip that around, managing suppliers with that same principle of what am I looking to achieve and how can I help my supplier to be successful into my business, actually, I, I get a much more kind of higher buzz out of that because it's no longer being kind of tied to an individual sales target. Yeah, I think so a lot of the people we have on this podcast have done bits on either side of the fence and and tend to have this view of uh, sales being uh, the start of the journey that negotiates the future value that's my words right then um, and it's not for seeing or seeing the whole journey through as such so you end up building this thing that was going to be great tomorrow and I th the more practical and delivery focused individuals I find that's not enough for because you have to peel off just at the point where it gets exactly. interesting right because you can actually do it and it's just all theory and then you're on to the next thing to build the next theory and then not do it um, and uh, and that's why all people are different right some people thrive in sales on that mentality and others like continuing with it and, and delivering and uh, the people having this podcast tend to be in that latter category that wanted to go and see it through and deliver it um, and, and, and look at it in a similar way to what the vendor ops community and, and we do in Brooklyn, which is you're not either side of the fence. You're in a matrix managed team that should be jointly focused on delivering value that's articulated more commonly in a, in a contract. And then how are we going to do that? Once you strip out all the legalese and the, the terms, what's the nuts and bolts of good old project management? What's the scope? Yeah. What are we trying to achieve and how are we going to deliver it? And what do we need to deliver that? Um, I think you seem in that same camp. Would you go back to sales or do you want to stay on the supplier side? It'd take a lot for me to go back into yeah. sales. Uh, yeah, I you know I like seeing things through. I like to see the reward off the back of it, um, and largely, you know, it, it's not about kind of an individual kind of thing being done. It, it's about the value that it delivers to the wider community, to you know, to to us as people from a social perspective. I want to see you know good change being made. We're all on a transformation journey, irrespective of kind of where you are in life and what you do. Mm. Things are changing constantly, and seeing that change through is uh, is when it has a an impact on society as a whole. I find that really inspiring. So, what's the ideal thing? So, so it's no secret, and I mentioned it before we started that you are looking for your next opportunity. So you're you're actively interviewing. When you get the classic interview question, so what are you looking for, Richard? What what's the what, what what's the next step look like for you in terms of what would you like to be doing and 
Where would you like to be working? Yeah, so I see supplier management in kind of three aspects. One is managing the suppliers uh, on a day-to-day basis, making sure the contract's delivered, managing the, the relationship performance, et cetera, et cetera. The second is then providing the standards. How should we be managing suppliers in a good way? What is, should we be looking for? What behaviors do we want to uh, see within that relationship? Um, and then thirdly is helping people to adopt those standards, the frameworks, the governance. And I'm certainly kind of more drawn to that kind of second second half of that, uh, those three pillars, if you like. Um, you know, I think those standards, whatever governance guidelines you want to put in place, they need to evolve. They need to continually improve. And uh, there's always going to be those tricky situations. doesn't matter how good your kind of standards and your frameworks are, there's always going to be something that comes outside of that. And that's where kind of then you need to have that overarching expertise to be able to understand both sides of the picture to, uh, to help them kind of manage it through. So yeah, I'm looking for a role where I can help to define, shape, and continually improve the overall landscape of, uh, of suppliers and customer relationships. Which is funny enough, very well articulated version of what the vendor ops community does <laughs> in, in trying to set those standards that we've, we've recognized just, just isn't really there in the, in the, in the, in the marketplace. Um, we, we see much like yourselves that people gravitate towards vendor management roles of all different walks of life mm. um, because there's an account management, relationship management aspect you get any one of those account manager, relationship managers, project manager types that can walk in from technology, from the business, from sales. And what we see a variety of skill sets uh, or backgrounds, should I say, that sit in these vendor management teams. And uh, um, they all bring with them their own experiences, right? And their own unique way of doing things. And that's why every time we talk to a prospect, uh, someone in the community or a customer in the Brooklyn sense that there's always different ways of doing the same thing and there, there is no standardization. And, and hopefully uh, with, with the help of people like yourselves, um, that we're going we're gonna to change that and give a, a go-to pack of things to be done in a certain way that's best articulated, designed and orientated for um vendor management for post-contract management of that customer supply relationship um, which kind of leads us on to the, the topic we were going to talk about which was risk um, and risk in, inherent risk and, and risk assessments uh, which we'll come on to but, but first we always like to in this uh, podcast talk about um, news topics that are relevant um, not to put our guest on the spot although it does to some degree we talk about a couple of things that are going on that are relevant in the, the space at the moment so the first one we're going to talk about is rail strikes so um, there's as no doubt everyone knows if, unless you've lived under rock there's some some disagreements happening between the the rail unions and the, the government and the employers the, 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 the companies themselves um, around pay conditions com- commuter habits have changed lockdowns had an impact in terms of uh, the the amount of rail requirement there is. So there's uh, contracts are being reduced, etc. And the, the industry and the union bodies around that industry are, are concerned and are, uh, want better terms. Um, essentially, sounds like a classic dispute, right, in a contract management sense. Um, what's your view of the situation? Um, 
what would you recommend if you put it in a not to get too to as you mentioned earlier politically aware um, but how would you deal with that if you was inside one of those organisations in the roles that you've done in the past what, what would you approach with so I think there's a there's a couple of principles to start with you know everybody deserves to earn you know a, a minimum standard everybody deserves to be treated well and fairly everybody deserves to turn up to work and enjoy their job right that's that's just a basic need in life um, but at the same time, we know the job that we're coming in to do. We know that things will change ultimately. We can't control what's going on around us and COVID and the rest has had an impact. Businesses have to change. Businesses have to move on. And, you know, it, it's a challenging situation for everybody. But right here, right now, over the last few weeks, so many people across the whole population have been impacted in one way or another as a result of it. And I don't think that you should ever really bring a dispute to the point that it interrupts society as a whole. That's not what it's about. I think that we do need to find a way to be able to bring the right people to the table to have the grown-up conversations without necessarily having the walkouts and the strikes and the disruption that it causes elsewhere. Um, I've been called a marriage guidance counsellor a number of times in my career. It's about trying to find those those right lines. And sometimes sometimes that is tricky and sometimes it will take some time. But try and do it without having the impact. It's interesting. I, I've got a lot of my extended family are ex um, either London Underground, Rail. Some of them are still in it and still working today. And it's uh, I, I spent most of my career private sector, so financial institutions. Um, and I went through from investment bank to wealth management to retail management organizations that had no union to retail management that had a union and uh, and applying the parallels that I learned there into sort of this, this rail situation is that the unions I think where there's one established there's no better mechanism for the negotiation that they're trying to achieve on behalf of the workers to, to the point you make right in terms of they want to be happy or they deserve to be happy they deserve to be paid right they deserve to be clear in contractual terms uh, aligned and and delivered on and not and not broken in terms of those rule sets but there's also a complication with the union that you get a detractor from the noise the, the chance of disputes and strikes etc and then that impact on Joe Public that you never really see in the private sector and I don't know whether that's because there's competition in that if you mistreat your employees in the private sector they just go to the next employer and it's a, it's a game of they can outdo each other from benefits, pay, offer so you don't ever have this problem because otherwise you lose your employees right? and they just go somewhere else um, have you got any thoughts on that in terms of What's, what's, the, what's the better mechanism than a union structure per se and how would you, how would you end up with a, a decent outcome rather than this loggerhead situation? Like in, the, in the roles that you've done, the, I assume there never is a point of which you've got that you turn, there's a threat maybe of turning service off, mm -hmm. but never in my career has service gone down. There's an honour to contract, there's an honour to, 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 to continue to provide the service. How in your career have you avoided that getting to this state it is at the moment? As I said earlier, it, it's a lot about the relationship and understanding what the other party is looking to achieve. And sometimes I think you've just got to take a step back from your own perspective in you know, the world. And I think the unions are you know, a great representation of the community as a whole. And yes, you know, maybe due to the private sector kind of nature of it, 
those employees don't have somewhere else to go and they've got to kind of continue fighting that uh, that that battle internally um, but yeah there's, there's other ways right call on kind of society as a whole to, to give you some support we've got so many social media outlets these days that actually you know you can uh, you can draw on uh, I guess society's perspective of the problem bring it to life through other mechanisms without the need of putting a strike and you know standing on the uh, on the picket lines that's that for me is is just that extreme step that you should be looking to try and kind of mitigate the situation and prevent that from happening rather than sometimes it feels like that's the plan you know, that, that's the outcome that the unions want to achieve is to get their names back out there again by having another strike. And aren't we doing a great job and we'll hold everybody to ransom in doing so? Maybe that's a bit extreme. It's, it's tough to look at it because you, you have that basis of with the media, right? You only see the part because you're not in it day to day. You only see the part that the media exposes to you or the, or the, or the news tells you about. And it's a it's an uninformed position that both of us sitting here are speculating with only probably ten percent of the facts yep. um, as to how we would change it. So I know it's always difficult from that perspective if you're not in the camp and you see all the the challenges of it. But that's what I said earlier. From from my career, it's always been keep the service on. Let's work out what our differences are and agree the differences and always get to a negotiated position. And first and foremost, like like you said, was get around the table, mm. actually meet all the parties that are, uh, and I keep hearing in the news that that's what seems to be some of the problem is, is just getting all the parties around the table to have a frank discussion yeah. and an open discussion about it um, in, in the business context. So in terms of disagreements, I've always had the best outcome where both supplier and, and buyer have been incredibly transparent. So they've been transparent down to the point of, this is what it costs us, this is the margin we're putting on it, this is the operation, this is the value you're deriving from it. And rather than having, early in my career, a guy that I worked for, I learned a lot of, one of the things I always remember is making sure with suppliers they were getting that they can afford to do it, right? Mm -hmm. So not just trying to always screw them down to the, the best price per unit. It's negotiating a good price per unit, but saying, can you sustainably deliver that over the life of the contract for that amount of money? Or are you just doing this for the brand? Because I need you to deliver the product eventually. Back to our earlier point, you negotiate the deal, and then someone's got to deliver that deal yeah. for that future value. And that always stayed with me that he, he used to check that the supplier was good for that, for the life of the contract. Like, it's hard to do, like why it's this relationship stuff. Whites are the eyes looking at each other and going, can you do it for that money? Are you, are you earning a profit off of it? Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I think a lot of it comes down to trust. You know, and, and trust, I'm a trusting person. You know, my default is to trust. Um, you know, other pe people take a completely opposite view to that. But I think by starting from a position of trust, it allows us to accept that what I'm being told can be done. Now, I'll do my due diligence and I'll check out that to help build up that trust. But if you're starting that negotiation from a point of no trust, it becomes really difficult from the start. Um, now, your trust can then be backed up through your contracts and you know, you're know che checking your, you know, your performance to contract and all the rest of it. But, um, but yeah, you've got to start from at least trying to understand somebody's perspective. If you can understand, and hopefully you'll kind of at least empathize, 
in some way, then you can build on that trust. You know, over time, then you can uh, you can experience what that trust really means. And um, yeah, keep checking back. You know, it's not a one-time thing. Much like we talk about kind of contracts being signed and put in a drawer and never kind of come back and see the light of day again. You've got to be able to keep that living and breathing, you know, having those face-to-face. All of the, uh, the you know, Zoom, Teams, all the rest of it, they all, they all add to it. But there is something about that in-person kind of exposure that just brings it to life and t- allows you to do that next thing that you hadn't really been able to just kind of pinpoint doing remotely. Tech's not quite cracked it as it is. You can get the, the 90 percentile done remotely now, but there is always that need for that final 10% on real serious situations and important situations. You have to do that coming together. Yeah. We find it internally and externally with our business that there's just certain things you need to be in the same room like today right a podcast it's very hard to do a podcast and get the conversation flow going um over zoom mm. wi-fi quality in and out recording etc um, and you actually given me a nice segue into our second topic um based on trust um so the the the, the recent local elections we've been seeing a lot of and where we've got um conservatives are losing some ground um, either Labour's coming, popping back in like they did in Wakefield or the Lib Dems are, are taking the lead in some of the local jurisdictions. Um, I suppose that's, that's kind of akin to marketing and a selection exercise to some degree. You're selecting the candidate for your local um, jurisdiction at, to the, represent you in the future. Um, but you bring trust into that and that's why they've they've likely lost the trust in the the the, the party in power um what's your what's your thoughts on that so i think largely you know the two main uh political parties that we've got in this country i kind of look at it that it's very kind of like for like you know switch out one name and replace with another you you're right with the kind of the marketing you know what is it that i'm buying into in the first place and then secondly trust do i believe that they can actually deliver against it and the Conservatives have been doing well, you know, over the last few years. I genuinely, I'm not a kind of Tory advocate. I'm not a Labour advocate. I kind of sit in the middle ground somewhere. But I do think that, you know, anybody, uh, any government that, that was faced with the challenges that we've had over the last few years, they're going to have problems along the way. Have we come out of everything that's happened in a good enough position? Yeah, I think we have. Uh, could it have been better? Maybe. Could it have been worse? Yes. We could have been in a horrific situation for a number of years to come. And hopefully we're going down the right track. Um, but I do think that change is, change is good. Um, I think it allows the public to, uh, to put their perspective forward. Uh, having a change in leadership, with, whether that is kind of local or uh, national, I think needs to happen from time to time. You know, every five, six years, you need to have that swing because otherwise things do get stale and everybody becomes a little bit complacent. I'd like to see in this country more, um, I guess, an open uh, candidate pool where you're not just going with the two main parties every time. Uh, You know, the Lib Dems have, have done well historically. Could they do well in the future? Yeah, probably. 
Um, I don't necessarily agree with their entire manifesto, but I think there's got to be that middle ground somewhere. And yeah, shaking things up, getting some fresh faces. Career as an engineer, I've, I've always been, I always like change. I quite do well with change. Um, it's quite natural for me to go through that level of re reinvent from a work perspective. I think much like the union model, I don't really have the answer, but I do, I do feel that with the current media again the way that it hypes up the, the political edge in terms of it's, it's akin to going to an exec company meeting and talking about the office party rather than the points that matter which is are we are we controlling our costs are we good, doing good enough on revenue etc what's the future hold for us what's the strategy and you can tend to get distracted by these more more media noise than the real problems mm -hmm. and I think there's a there's part of that that happens there's a bit of the circus around the marketing element of of government and the always a it's a unique environment because right? you've got those two parties that are just always looking for one way to oust the other mm. um, in whatever way which is not constructive and detracting from the bigger problems like the pandemic like the current recovery mm -hmm. of the of the, the economy the the unrest in Ukraine which are the important things and they, they tend to get pushed back a bit yeah like I said I have no answers to fix this but it seems you'd that make the, a lot of money if you could yeah exactly, <laughs> yeah exactly I think and the whole the whole system just seems like it needs a bit of a reboot uh, a macro level which is like I agree a lot easier said than done um, let's not have a revolution on our hands <laughs> small change small change yeah I think that's, that's the way it has to be lived forward right is that element of small change and I know and I've, I've worked in the, the public sector and I know a lot of people that work in the public sector and it is, it is tough with those cycles and the way it works, like all change mm -hmm. to get some consistency in what, what, what gets done. But um, it's interesting to see it unfolding in front of you day in, day out. I admit sometimes I have to turn the news off because it gets a little bit samey, samey. But um, yeah, good. We spoke about... Um, the, in the, within the rail strikes that element of trust and um, coming back to that for just a moment I, most of my career has been in transformational change and, and changing stuff and changing stuff in a quite an aggressive environment no doubt some of the environments you worked were quite uh, ferocious as well in terms of the, the what they was doing from a growth perspective um, I, I've always been someone that has to your point, you kind of give trust to start with. As long as you go through a process of making sure the person in front of you has been vetted in a different manner, interview, capability, background, that they are worthy of putting a level of trust into. And then rather than that old adage of you must trust must be earned, there's a level of you do a bit of due diligence, you give some trust because you've done a bit of due diligence and then you wait for them to break that trust kind of model. And I, I, I look at that in the same way with, with employment. So the people we hire, we look at, can I give a level of trust based on their background credentials and the way we're assessing them? Um, which is the topic we've got today, right? Which is the different of inherent risk, right? So what's the risk of um, us asking a third party to do this service or provide this product? doesn't matter what, what third party it is, it's just what's the risk of us giving this part of our business to someone else. Mm -hmm. And then you go through a level of understanding that, that element of risk. And then I suppose there's a due diligence sense, which is we found someone we think will provide this product and service to us for a fair, fair value. 
are they the right partner for us? And then it starts on a different kind of assessment, which is, are they financially stable enough? Have they got the right skill sets, the right capability, the right thought leadership and strategy? Um, is this a mainstream product for us or, or, or for them? Or are they just doing this on a whim and they'll go back to something else because they sell something that's unrelated? Um, what's your, proce your, your process been in the last, I suppose, couple of years at ARM? around doing that initial selection at a vendor perspective uh, so the the inherent risk so mm -hmm. what's the associated risk of what we're doing and then how did you validate the partner was right for you and what approach did you take how did you structure it um, I understand I asked you a lot in that question and there's probably a really long answer there but I did it on purpose because it is such a big answer and it's the main part of this topic so how did you approach it how did you break it all down into its component parts Good question, thank you. <laughs> Long question. <laughs> Long answer, I'm sure. So again, just bringing it back to kind of what are we looking to achieve and why? That's where you've got to start. Um, obviously, there's a whole bunch of kind of financials and due diligence that, that you mentioned that you need to do behind it. Um, but I think it, it's about if you can understand what you're looking to achieve, there might be plenty of options available to you. And you know, within any business, you'll always have individuals that already know what that answer is or think that they do. Or it might just be a complete gaping chasm, right? So you've got to start off with somewhere of understanding what are the options available to us to meet that need. Um, then you're down to kind of what fits the, uh, the, that need in the, the most kind of eloquent way. Um, and um, yeah, then you'll find yourself in a position of the Rolls-Royce versions and the, you know, the, the lesser known versions, right? Affordability, I suppose. Based on affordability. And, you know, and that changes from every business's perspective um, due to a whole bunch of external influencing factors, some of which you may or may not be able to control. Um, but then it does come down to things that you mentioned, like financial stability, recommendations. Uh, you know, do they have the due diligence processes within their own organisation in order to support and underpin whatever services it, it is that you're looking to uh, to get out of it? Um, and and then how do they go about delivering that? Because we know what the outcome is that we want to achieve. And is the route to that outcome going to be really straightforward? Has it been done time and time again? Yeah, tried and tested path. Let's go down that route. Or is this brand new? Are we really out there at the frontier trying to do it for a first time? And that's where that tr you come back to the trust element. And again, you've done the research. You've done the due diligence. We know that this is a company that we could work with. But do we want to work with them? Is there going to be you know, too much risk in there. You know, it's the age old kind of challenge of risk versus reward. And sometimes going down that slightly less known path gives the best reward off the back of it. Um, but you've got to bring it back, as I said, to what are we looking to achieve? What are the outcomes that we want to deliver? Then what are the controlling factors that we have around that, which will be associated with commercials, it might be a value proposition, what is the risk associated with that? And what are the uh, the potential rewards to counter those risks? So Andy, what was your experience of that 
uh, arm within within the boundaries of what you you can tell us. So, arm from a brand perspective, associated with being a very innovative engineering, architecturally delivered um, blueprint, right? That's used and sold the world over for for chips in. All, all different kind of things, but mainly Android devices, right? Samsung devices that, that have, are running those those, those chipsets. Um, where was the appetite arm from a risk perspective? In commonly, the way you put the more the more innovative organisations are somewhat the lesser known. They're right against the edge of they're not your safe bet, right? You can stay right in the middle of the pack, which with your your steady eddies that aren't really gonna provide you this innovative flair but you're going to get a consistent outcome from a brand perspective it felt like arm was always to the to the right of that and the more innovative track was that true from their suppliers or was that just them as a company was innovative and they wanted the steady suppliers or how did that play out i think arm took a broader approach to how they managed their suppliers and the risk associated with it and you would have yes your kind of your niche players but also the big big players in the in the same market and by having bets placed across the table rather than into uh, into you know everything on red i think they had a nice little balance there where you can diversify across your supply base um, but that in itself has a challenge right the more suppliers that you've got in your supply base the more you've got to manage the more risk that comes from that and um, and so it's about finding that right balance and again, bringing it back to what's the overall strategy that you're looking to achieve. How did you see that play out? Was there a level of, I've seen it play out in terms of some orgs will go, do you know what, we're going to do in this space from a sourcing perspective, a dual vendor strategy. We're going to get one, the 80% are that's run by the, the steady known mm-hmm. brand that's been around forever. But we're going to do a bit of strange stuff with this new visionary organization that's coming up here that's just out of startup sort of scale up mentality just to see how that that balances out so we kind of don't commit like you said don't put everything on red or black you're kind of hedging a little bit just to see where you get to was was that your experience of strategy at all in, in arm or any other organization you've worked with or so the point that i joined arm uh there was very little kind of in terms of standard procurement policies pretty much everybody went and bought what they wanted when they want and there was a team of kind of good procurement professionals that were entirely IT focused and over a period of time the business started to understand that actually we need to have a standard way of doing this we need to engage our suppliers in a you know a, a common way not just going and buying the next thing that Joe Bloggs wants just because he's got the kind of the money to do it. And um, and so by putting in more of a standard approach, your fundamentals, your best practices, your policies, your guidelines, all the rest of it, then you can slowly start to uh, course navigate towards a more consistent way of doing it. Then we can start to put in place those kind of buying principles that we want. What are the values that we want to achieve from our supply base? Where do we want to diversify in our supply base? Where do we want to reach out to kind of smaller niche players? Where do we just want to go with economies of scale and go with the biggest just because that's kind of the tried and tested and we know that the price will be about right. Everybody gets it from the same price point. So it's about balance. It's about trying to put the bits that uh, of your 
outsourced capability into good hands where you need to, where you know that actually those economies of scale are going to help you out, but also bringing in those niche players that can add that spark, that innovation, the, hey, why haven't you thought about doing it this way? And that's what drives a company like Arm to be more innovative. We're only as good as the suppliers that we choose to work with, in my humble view. Yeah, Arm's a good, uh, it's, it's a good discussion point because it's such a recognized brand um, well, to, 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 to many. Um, but it's also, it's quite a fast growing, innovative company, like I said, that is good to track that, that, that maturing of that every all goes through in terms of the, we have that semblance of needing to get control and you deploy to understand what does control look like from a data perspective? Where are we today? And a couple of times you spoke about as a consultant what I call current state assessment. So you've done a number of what's our current state and out of that current state, where do we want to get to from a target state? And from a what I see is common in organisations is be innovative where you need to be innovative. If you don't need to be innovative, don't. And what I mean by that is if it's not a differentiator for you as a company, don't try and be innovative in it. So if you're not if you're not selling innovation within that area, um, so, so why try and be innovative in, in sort of steady, let's say you're a bank and you sell banking services, why try and build an innovative data center? There's people like AWS yeah. and, and Azure and some third parties that sell physical data center space that are the specialists in data center and innovate there. Why as a bank try and build the most innovative data center? And there are awards that are given out for that within the industry, but from a business strategy perspective, that never made sense to me. So I would expect there'd be innovation tracks where it makes difference to the business to either accelerate their their growth and go to market. You try to, you need to do that that testing there, right? I, yeah, that's right. And I think you know you you mentioned the data center piece. That's that's a really easy one, right? Um, why go and reinvent the wheel when somebody else that's got the money behind it can do that innovation for you? If you're not selling wheels, right? If it's not a competitive thing that you're in, yeah. then why try and do the hard thing? Someone else has done the hard thing already. Yeah. But sometimes innovation can, particularly in supplier client relationships. Innovation can be much broader than just the products and services that you know you're available to buy off the shelf. Sometimes it's about kind of the internal business functions, and if you can generate that good relationship, then you can start to understand how actually do you operate as an organisation. You're an engineering organisation. We're an engineering organisation. Let's forget about technology. Let, let's t forget about products and selling stuff. Tell me how you actually engage your people. What is it that gets people up at your organization and makes them want to come into work? That's a much more valuable conversation that can lead into innovation into a whole bunch of different areas from a kind of business process perspective than is wider than the technology that you're using to kind of underpin that. And, you know, bringing that then into the kind of hands of an end user, we all want to experience something that's, you know, new, you know, how many times has, uh, has Facebook and all the rest of it kind of changed the way that we engage with that type of technology? And, and so, yeah, you know, we're getting new and younger and younger generations come through. Everybody wants to see something slightly different, more akin to kind of what they're used to doing in their personal life. Consumerization of IT, yeah. Exactly. So, um, so yeah, there's innovation that you can bring from so many different angles. 
So to unpick that slightly, so is that something that you, in your experience, you've looked for in a in a partner in the past, which is we're going out for a product and service, and that's that's a known right, and that's the reason you do the sourcing exercise. But then when you look to really assess and, and partner with that that organisation, do you look at the value they can bring and the value add? outside of the product and service which is a given so I mean, what you were just articulating there is they might be experienced in a certain area you may, you used engineering as an example maybe the, all their process and their engineering processes we can borrow that and apply that to what we do and then for what would cost you a lot of money in consultants engineering sort of level consultants you'll get value from that to go quicker faster that's not necessarily aligned to the product you initially bought mm-hmm. from them um, have you have you had that in the past? Any examples that you'd, you'd you'd bring to life on that, where you have untapped into that sort of either unassumed benefit of being a partner with an organisation? Yeah, absolutely. So, great example was uh, Microsoft. Right, everybody uses Microsoft, and if you go over to Microsoft's headquarters, you'll probably do an executive business unit trip. Right, And you'll get to see all of the great products that that Microsoft have available and you'll get to demo those and you'll see how it works. And, you know, this might be technology that's kind of not coming out for three or four years yet. And that's great. But from our perspective, when we were going to that, it was actually a material of those technologies. Yeah, they were interesting. But what we really wanted to do was understand what made that technology come about in the first place. What are those things? How do you enable that innovation, the thought leadership, the understanding of where you're going for products that most consumers haven't even thought of yet? That starts to unlock a much deeper, richer conversation that you get value out of. As you say, you can spend thousands working with um, a whole bunch of consultancy organizations that can give you some insight into that. But I much prefer that kind of living, breathing, real-world examples of the things that went well, the challenges that you had along the way, and learning from each other. And and a great partnership relationship is about that learning experience, trusting each other that that experience, those that insight that you've been able to get isn't then going to be kind of used for wrong purposes, and it's not going to get that out there into kind of the general population because it's all IP at the end of the day. Um, so yeah, it's that's that's what I look for in a great relationship. Now, it takes certain products, capabilities, business cases, all the rest of it to to need that additional insight, and you've got to warrant having to put that time and effort in. And that's where again, you know, we go back to kind of supplier segmentation and the Krajic Krajic model. model. Um, they're all great, but you've got to look at it from both sides. You've got to look at what's in this actually from the supplier's perspective. Why do they want to engage with me? Is it just about bottom line revenue? Or is it, as you mentioned earlier, is it more about brand? Is it about something more than just the uh, the financials associated with this contract? And you know, particularly in today's market, customer-supplier relationships, they're happening everywhere. And most big organizations, they will be both a customer and a supplier in one way or another. And if you can tap into both sides of that, you're onto an absolute winner. Mm. I did read that there was only, so like, there's only 10,000 large organizations, apparently, that there's, there's a very uh, interconnected 
network of supplier buyer relations in there. There's only so many of them, but many thousand, but still, there's still a, a known quantity of, of relations out there to be managed. Um, so for those listening that were just starting out on their what you, you've done over the, the, the last few years and, and become a, a, a pseudo specialist of is where would you advise our listeners to start with either measuring risk in an inherent risk sense or risk assessments mm-hmm. if they could only do a little bit what what would you recommend to, 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 to get to the point we were talking about of fostering those relationships you, only, you can only foster those relationships if you've done some kind of assessment at the beginning that says you'll get a relationship worth fostering if you see what I mean so what would your recommendations be? So I think you've you start fundamentally with you know the, I keep coming back to kind of the, the business need and the drivers what are we engaging in this uh, in this relationship to do that's an element you've then got what I would call core capabilities and competencies um, you know there, there are clear red flags you know uh, and we could start with kind of the financials, but we might get into things like slave labor, you know, minimum wage, uh, ethical business processes. Now, you know, for a for a local corner shop, they might not necessarily be too worried about where their products are going to come from because it's pretty faceless, right? Are you going to stop shopping at your local shop because they're sourcing from third parties that have been accused of? some slave labor issues well is that going to stop you kind of shopping at your local shop to go and buy a, you know your, your next bar of chocolate no it's not I suppose it's one of those things that I get the point you're making but if it was known about some maybe would but it's about I suppose in a big business sense you can't afford for that to be that's tomorrow's headline right in a, in a big organisation sense so not, not so much back to what we were talking about earlier with the media the local corner shop's probably not going to get reported in the sun for, for having that level of unknown supply chain issue um, I suppose if they did in theory and where everything's became more transparent people would decide to maybe shop somewhere else they, they could but it's about where where's the biggest impact so what we need to do as an organisation is to understand what are those areas, what are the topics, if you like, that we need to focus on? What matters, what's going to detract A, people buying from us, or B, us not being as profitable, or C, not getting to market as quickly as everybody else? If you can understand those potential factors, then you can start drilling into, okay, what's the question that we need to ask in order to assess what the level of risk is there? So, so I know you guys used to run like a, a multi-domain assessment model the nine or ten domains you had mm-hmm. eventually I think how do you summarize those domains I think one way that I look at it is that you have can they can they perform the task of which we ask and can they fulfill the need you said need a lot right so can they fulfill the need and can they meet that demand then you have to check that and, and is that delivered in a resilient way I suppose then there's an area that says the social economic responsibility bit that you bring up about the the corner shop example is, is are they are they a reputable organisation that are doing the right thing by ethical standards around all, all facets of that so environmental people etc. And what's the, the third area are they there's, a, there's over maps of the first one sustainability in the the the, the 
environmental sense, but are they a sustainable business model that's going to innovate and drag us along and help us uh, scale our business, I suppose, as a third group? Um, anything else that we didn't touch upon there or anything specific you'd call out? Yeah, I think security is a big one. Um, so being, being an XC, so you think I should know that? <laughs> well, I don't like to catch you out. Um, but again, security from many aspects, right? You've you've got cybersecurity, which is clearly a hot topic and will continue to be. Yeah. Uh, you've got physical security and perimeter and data access. You know, do we trust this person to actually manage this company to manage the data that we're giving them access to? How are they going to store it? Um, you know, the, there's lots in there. You can then get into kind of more of the operational side, the business continuity. What is that level of resilience? And that needs to be both technical and process based, right? Because at the end of the day, we could all be, you know, uh, have a power outage. Networks could go down. Our backup power supply could go down. What are we going to rely on? Well, hey, we might actually just be back to good old face-to-face -face communication. And, um, and so, yeah, there's so many different aspects of it that you could go on forever and ever. I think the key is bringing it back to just that handful of questions per kind of risk domain that allows you to then dive further into it when there's an exception. So you're talking about a primed set of leading questions that are your flags to say, actually, I need to give you more questions in this particular area that you, you, you indicate a problem in. What, commonly we see risk assessments all done at the beginning of a relationship. Um, what, what cadence do you recommend that they're, they're done on? Is it a one-time thing that's done at the beginning of a relationship or is it, is there, is it periodic? And if it's periodic, what, what would you recommend? So it's definitely not a one-off uh, one activity. You've got to manage it throughout the period of, a, uh, of an overarching relationship. So yes, do, you, do your due diligence, your risk assessments prior to contract, but also do it afterwards. I would suggest that a minimum of an, on an annual basis would be ideal. Um, now, Clearly, if you're going to do it annually and you've got thousands of suppliers, you need to automate that as much as you can. You need to streamline the process, but also thinking about it from your uh, kind of recipient's angle, because you don't want to put too much effort or ask too much of your supplier in filling it out. You don't want the person that's just going to give you the answers that they want because it's the easiest thing to get off their desk. Mm -hmm. You want to be able to trust that the answers that you get and have integrity to them. And so, yeah, you've, you've got to have it up front. You want to have it mid-cycle, periodically. You then probably want to have one if the relationship comes to an end. I'd suggest you want to do a risk assessment on exit. Yeah. What's the residual factor and exposure as a result of this relationship now ending? Now, that might be things like you know, data access and IP that the, uh, that the organization might still access. Uh, for a period of time. Um, so, so that's kind of one angle to it. And then you've got your ad hoc, you know, your COVID, your Brexits, your Suez Canal, all of those situations that then need to be a little bit more tailored to that individual situation. And that's where you really want to be triggering those on an ad hoc basis, probably at the point that whatever that situation is that's occurred to say, situations occurred, 
What is the impact to your organization? What is the knock-on impact to my organization, the services that you provide to me? And you want to do that almost at the point in time that that has happened, as soon as possible. And then you want to follow up with that at an appropriate point, three months, six months later, to say, is this risk still happening? Is there something new that's coming about? Have you changed your business processes? We all know the supply chain issues have been here for a number number of years now. They will continue. You know, just looking at kind of what happened with COVID, Brexit, and all those other events, we're still feeling the ramifications of that now. So you've got to keep coming back at the appropriate point in time and with as minimal disruption to the people that you're actually asking to, A, provide the response to that risk assessment, but also the people that are actually doing the follow-up, the due diligence, the review of those kind of responses that the organisations provided. That's what we, we, we talk to our clients about, which is you've got to prepare for the the analogy of painting the fourth bridge, right? You've got to lay off uh, the number of segmented suppliers that you have and what you deem the cutoff point to be critical to transactional, right? And yeah. And what you do with each of those groupings, how regularly you do it, and then plan, plan for that to be a baseline activity that you do on a, an annual basis and size your organisation uh, according to that. Um, what's your? You mentioned some ad hoc stuff there. Um, what are your go-to resources for formulating those those risk assessments? So, I think I don't know whether it's just I become more aware in, in the older older I get. But there seems to be an increasing amount of those ad hocs that happen, be it geopolitical, uh, civil unrest, like I said, inclement weather that pop up that frequently need either procurement functions or business unit functions to reach out to all their common suppliers and say cyber threats you see all the time. I can count five, six, seven of the ones that have made the media over the last sort of two or three years. Every time there's that scramble for one initially, what is it? how do I understand this to enough of a level to go and question my suppliers without sounding like I don't know what I'm talking about which no one likes to do Um, but in enough of a way to say do you have problems in your organisation are you on top of it Um, how are you accounting for it what are the risks that you see I suppose there's that one off and then there's the, the, the periodic reassessment of that how do you start that process? Where do you go in your experience? Well, nobody has all the answers, right? So hopefully through kind of implementing your risk assessment process function, you understand who your stakeholders are, who those SMEs are. And more often than not, certainly when I was kind of managing supply-based risk within ARM, you know, I, I would hear about this from my SMEs who would come to me going, situation has occurred we need to reach out we need to find out some information um you know can you help us and um and that's great when you can bring it all together and you've got those smes to to go to and and it does come down to starting with what's the scope you know we've got however many thousand suppliers out there not everybody's going to be impacted so understanding whether this is something that we need to look at from a particular category perspective, you know, is it technology based? Is it people based? Is it logistics? Um, that's that allows us to at least shortlist who we're going to go out to. And then your questions will be, you know, you've got to start with some basics, right? That allow a kind of a logic tree to come out off the back of it. 
let's start with some fundamentals. This is the situation. Are you exposed to yeah. it? Are you in or out? That's your first question. <laughs> that is your first yeah. question. And then you get into kind of the relative kind of measures. Um, how, how in are you? <laughs> how in are you? Exactly. And, um, and, you know, the other side of it is what's the impact on me? You know, hopefully, you know, if I'm sending this out to my account managers, they understand how I'm using their services. So I'm looking for them to provide insight to me on the potential impact of their goods and services being impacted. What's that knock on impact to me? Is it delay? Is it actually it's not going to be available? Is it it's going to be a bit flaky? You know, there are so many different gray areas in here that, again, it comes back to who's impacted, what's the scope of the problem, and then we can dive into it. Um, but also, we've got to bring it back to the trust element. Does the person that's going to respond to this understand the problem enough to provide me a contextual response that is adequate to my needs? So one thing you mentioned there was about SMEs um, and SMEs on both sides of business. You mentioned it in the sense of how you'd set yourself up from having a topic or a situation occur, Brexit, pandemic. You'd then look to a network of SMEs and equally then the questions you'd put out to your suppliers, you'd expect the contact on the other side of the table to have an equal sort of response SME, right? And what, what we think uh, in, in, in Brooklyn and from a vendor's perspective is supply chain management is so big and pervasive when you look at these large companies interfacing with each other through through a couple of people that you can't have vendor management as just a single dedicated function like a siloed mentality you you need to go in day one and establish your operating model that has connections to all these smes that you you won't saturate with work, but you will get from the principles of being able to ask that yes, no, am I in or out question, right, of, of a particular topic and work with them to establish at what point do you care about this enough that I come back and get you that it fails your test. Yeah. Um, and, and the software we've built in Brooklyn is very similar to that, as, as, you, as you would well know, which is it asks the basic question and depending how you indicate yes or no, do I have a problem or not? It then triages you down to the point of the exception management where you go and get the SME. Um, once you've asked the, the thousands of vendors and you hopefully go to the SME with only seven of the real concerning ones that you've got to, to opine on. How, how do you, how did you establish those relationships to start with, with day one when you went into, when you went into ARM as an example, when you was building this out because we said the nature of it needs to be a hybrid operating model, right? You, you need to be highly collaborative, both in the supplier sense, but both the internal sense. What would you recommend, like I said, when you build these things? How do you do that? How do you foster that relationship? How do you find those people in an organization? Finding them might be a challenge. It can be. Um, look, it, it's, it's an evolving beast. Uh, you're not going to kind of wake up one morning and suddenly everybody's banging at your door as the subject matter expert and it will be split across the business. Uh, you know, there are so many pockets in every organization of that expertise that, that, that really understands how these things tick. And I think it is about kind of centralizing that framework, understanding, broadcasting that kind of capability out to the masses to then kind of hope that you're actually going to start to get some feedback. That's something that I, sounds like something I should be involved in. Uh, yeah, brilliant. Come aboard. 
Let's go on a journey together. Now, you're not going to get that immediately. So ideally, you can find just that handful of small kind of um, teams within the organization that have that level of interest to start with. You know, the, the risk assessors that uh, or um, the, the risk domain experts that I was working with, you know, we started off with, you know, a handful of them that, that then grew over time. And by showing the value that that your proposition provides, it's very much like an internal sales job, right? Yeah. Um, it's if I can show you the value that I can give to you from a technology, a solution, a centralized capability, whatever that is, it, it should sell itself because hopefully I'm saving you time, I'm providing you more insights, I'm making your life easier. That's what it's all about. Um, and over time, then, that will then become a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy where everybody wants in on it. Um, and yeah, suddenly you go from what you thought was actually quite a niche need, suddenly becomes everybody being interested. And yeah, if you can manage your risk and your performance and your governance and all the rest of it through one model, brilliant. One place to feed everybody's needs. From my experience, what we've seen in, in talking to a lot of different size organizations is that unless you're at the 15,000 employee range you, where you start getting these uh, risk domain functions being stood up, so you get second line risk teams and you get specific risk managers or risk specialists for particular domains, you commonly find it first in more larger but regulated businesses. Yeah. So back to the point I made around my background being financial services, you have a lot of these risk specialist compliance risk uh, employee risk tech risk kind of people that spot up that unless you're in an organization of that size to find those SMEs is easier because there's some with that title um, I, I learned a few years ago that if you're not in an organization that big one way you can do it is because vendor manager is rightly or wrongly considered to be backwards looking and from an organization to the suppliers that supply that organization um, it was recommended that individual go to the front of their own business and what their own business sells mm -hmm. and find the way that a contract from a customer into their organization would work and who would answer all the due diligence questions on that side of the fence. And you'll typically find people with different titles that are in a sales and commercial kind of mm -hmm. title that actually are the SMEs that can help you if they just turned around and looked back because they answer the questions for everyone else. Um, and that was a tip that someone gave us a long time ago about finding people that can help you with vendor management just by switching mindset and looking forward. Like a business you always you always consider this business looks forward, right? Everyone looks forward and does the sales of that business. There's very few roles that are, are rear-facing. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time debating about kind of, you know, I, within Arm, I delivered these kind of supplier management kind of trainings, guidelines, playbooks, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, yeah, I, I just wanted to reach out to our sales teams just to go, how do we do it? Yeah. Because, you know, if this is what we expect our suppliers to do, shouldn't we set the bar at that level to start with? Because if we're doing, if we're delivering to our own customers in this way with, you know, all of those SMEs supporting it, you know, hopefully, A, we can synergize and, and, you know, find common ground and we can reduce the level of effort and reduce the number of teams, less SMEs. But actually, you're measuring your own standards and ethics and values and delivering to your customers in the same way 
irrespective of whether you're looking at your customer or whether you're looking at your supplier. Yeah, and I think that is back to the where we started, that sort of poacher come gamekeeper. If you don't treat it, that you're belonging to either side of the table and you're actually in a relationship that is a team to deliver a, a contractual mm-hmm. thing, then and you're in that team together. That's where we commonly see that the better performers sit which is that that common function we're in it together we will do it together it just, it just so happens we are paid each month by some different company absolutely but you you know just taking that an extent you should treat your supply base as your own employees treat them as your colleagues nobody ever wants to be in the meeting where somebody's kind of slamming their fists on the table uh, treating people with disrespect just because they happen to be working for a customer just because you're paying me doesn't mean that you you know I deserve to be treated that way if you can treat everybody as one team yes there are kind of commercial focuses we're all here to kind of do what we need to do from our business's perspective but we're all people we all get up in the morning expecting to go and enjoy our day in the office. Nobody wants to turn up kind of regretting or not looking forward to uh, whatever we're going to go into today. And so, yeah, if you can treat everybody to the standards that you would like to be treated, great. This is more about social kind of dynamics than it is business relationships, right? And you've got to take that forward. Yeah, and I think a lot of, I see a lot of people forget that the, when you deal with large corporates there's this kind of mentality of it's a large organisation but ultimately it's made up of people and it comes down to people at the end of the day and it doesn't matter if it's a large body or a small body of people depending on how you interact with them it's just a person to person relationship right so the same rules still apply whatever scale you look at it absolutely um Thank you, Richard. I found it very, uh, very useful, very interesting, and hopefully the listeners do as well, no doubt. Um, how can people get hold of you if they want to talk to you more? LinkedIn. Everybody's on LinkedIn these days, right? So, uh, yeah, look me up on, uh, on LinkedIn. I'm Richard Harrison. I'm a uh, supplier and relationship management advocate. Thank you. Thank you for your time. To keep up with the latest Brooklyn Vendor Assurance news, subscribe here and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Links in the description below.